News. You're listening to WMNF Tampa, WMNF 88.5 FM. Welcome to the afternoon. afternoon. Thank you so much for tuning in to WMNF today. You are listening to Community Radio, live, local, independent radio, funded by you, our wonderful listener supporters. My name is Joellen Schilke. I am the hostess who loves you absolutely the mostest, 
On today's show, uh, Alexander Rich, Dr. Alexander Rich is going to be coming in from the Polk Museum of Art or calling in from the Polk Museum of Art about this really interesting show they have there today. So we're going to be talking about friendship between artists. And I will tell you the names of the artists, and I'm sure to butcher one of them. Edward Hopper, of course, and Guy, I think it's Guy Pen Dubois, or it could be Guy Pen Dubois. Dr. Rich will let me know. Uh, so stay tuned for that, plus stuff going on around town. Plus, I'm filling in for Flea on Monday from noon to three. So Flea Ellen will be on the air for a New Year's show. So if you think about it, you can email DJ at WMNF.org or text 813-433-0885. And tell me if you have resolutions, what they are. Mine are sleep more, party more. That's it. That's what I got. Sleep more, party more. (laughs) Oh, I got a yes (laughs) on that. So let me know what your resolutions are. We're going to play a little bit more music, and then we'll be back in a few minutes with Dr. Rich on the phone. Uh, Last night, I got to see Hamilton again. Oh, my God, it's so good. The voices. I I was just blown away by how good everyone's voices were. It's such a good show, and uh, made me want to play this Jill Scott. And this uh, song goes out to my best friend, since we're going to be talking about best friends. Uh, This is Jill Scott doing a song from Hamilton. Say yes to this. Here I stand A woman Talking to her man I know you're my man In the deepest, sweetest parts of me Where I can't pretend I want you for always Ain't no reason To try and navigate around A dream coming to fruition I need your decision now Cause I'm standing here With my soul in my hand Everybody around here wants me I think you can And you should We could be so happy, baby I'll be your ever-loving woman You'll be my ever-loving man I'll be your angel and your best friend Wait a minute, what did you say? How? How you gonna say no? How you gonna say no to me? But I'm offering you my love and a genuine connection You could have my loyalty and all of my affection You're looking everywhere, but every road will lead to my direction Don't play, play, ain't no cause for you to ever say that I'm a freak with technique, but the epitome of a lady I'm the element of surprise, you can call me Eureka I'll make you bust when I put this face on your tweet
talking to her man. And that is Jill Scott covering Say Yes to This from Hamilton, which is open at the Stras. I uh, just saw it last night. It goes for a while, and I'm so, so blown away by this show. And speaking of blown away, I had the delightful uh, pleasure of going to see Edward Hopper and Guy Penn Dubois painting the real at the Polk Museum of Art this week, uh, a show put together with uh, by my guest, Dr. Alex Rich. Alex, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm glad you enjoyed the show. I did, and it was so interesting because uh, there's a lot of different strands to follow with this, of course. And uh, I was reading up on you, and you uh, did your research, of course, uh, your dissertation on uh, Penn de Bois. So, so I'm sure, you know, so lots of information there. But I'm so curious, like, what what was the spark to do this show? It's an unusual show, and and we'll talk about how it's put together and stuff. But I walked out thinking, like, I just want to know so much more about all of this. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad, and hopefully that's the spark of interest that people will have in looking at Guy Penn Dubois in contrast to Edward Hopper, the two of whom were friends, but who is much better known. At mo- most people, if they are aware of either of the two, they will know Edward Hopper. And so it's been a passion project of mine for a number of years now to bring greater attention to other sides of Edward Hopper, but also more importantly and more impactfully perhaps to Guy Penn Dubois. So as you said, I did my undergraduate thesis actually on Edward Hopper, and then I did my <laughs> graduate dissertation on Guy Penn Dubois. And I was always fascinated by the intersections between the two. But for me, as the director of the museum and the chief curator of the museum and as an art historian, this is my dream come true to take all of my research that I spent a lot of time, as you write a dissertation, takes a long time, and I pulled it all together, and now to have the absolute ability to present it in our Smithsonian-affiliated museum with loans from some of the most major museum and private collections across the country and introduce most people to a relationship between Hopper and Penn Dubois and to Penn Dubois to begin with. There's so much more to say about him, and I hope people will learn that via additional materials and lectures and just by coming to the show. Well, what was so interesting, too, is that you can see, I mean, because the show isn't, uh, well, I should say, I didn't move through the show chronologically. I kind of wandered around uh, mm-hmm. in different places. But it was so interesting to see, not just when they both uh, covered sort of the same, not even source material, but sort of the same sort of stuff, but that they, of course, they were only a couple of years apart in age, but what they lived through and how they translated similar experiences to the canvas. And yeah, yeah. Uh, and that, you know, and there was this great zone, and it was really interesting because people, um, even though it was not a, it's not a big part of the show, but there's a corner where they're both, the artworks are all referring to war. Mm-hmm. And and they're both, you know, they're both, there's artworks from both men about, for instance, war. And that made me think about, of course, you study this, though their lives covered, they, they were becoming young men when there's a Spanish-American war. They, mm-hmm. of course, were, were grown, grown men for the First World War, and then there was the Depression, and then there was the Second War, and then there was the Korean War. So we talk a little bit about, um, before we talk specifically about them, about their place a little bit within the art world at the time, because they, I mean, certainly um, Penn Dubois was a force for changing or exposing modern art. Good, and I'm glad, and I'm glad you picked up on that because you know 
one of the important parts about art history, and I say this to my students, um, I'm still a full-time professor also at Florida Southern. So I say this to That's my a lot. <laughs> I know. I, 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 I'm, I'm exhausted all the time. I love everything I do, but I love the intersection between what we're able to do at the museum and do in the classroom. But, you know, as I tell my students, you know, art history is not necessarily just about the history of art. It's looking at history through art. So you cannot divorce the artist or the art movements from the times in which they are produced or the times in which these artists are producing works in them. So the fact that both Hopper and Pendebois, as you said, lived through the Spanish-American War in the end of the 19th century, and they are there in, you know, in the years immediately prior to World War I, they are in Paris as young men. And then Pendebois leaves New York and Connecticut, you know, more closely, living in Connecticut at the time, from 1924 to 1930 during Prohibition era. So you can trace their lives through these really important eras. And Pendebois in particular, and this is the argument I made in my dissertation, and I purposely inject it into the show as well, is that he could be known for one thing in particular. He was the man who actually wrote the first essays about European modern art for the public in the 1913 Armory Show, which goes down as the most important exhibition of the 20th century because it introduced U.S. audiences to avant-garde artists that were not even that avant-garde anymore by standards of European art. But in New York City, first time people were seeing works by Van Gogh and Seurat and Gauguin and Picasso and Duchamp, and he was one of the planners behind that event, and he wrote the first essays about it. That's just his writing side. And so he was really important as an art critic. He was one of the most esteemed figures in the American art world as a writer in the first half of the 20th century. But then probably even to more surprise of folks coming to the show is that he was just as well known as Edward Hopper was when they were both alive in that first half of the 20th century. And yet most people, again, have heard of Hopper, but they've not heard of Pendebois. So that's the brunt of my dissertation. And I've tried to fuse that into the exhibition as well, this idea that what is it about Pendubois that made him somehow be more forgotten than someone like Hopper? Well, and I, I think it's really important narrative. Right, and I wonder, too, because Hopper uh, and listeners uh, probably will know best because of the Nighthawks painting, which is that, uh, you know, that sort of film noir uh, took a ton of popper of hopper uh you know moods and mm-hmm. and did it but i think maybe that might be part of it is that popular culture has taken a lot of what hopper has done and translated it into film and into visuals and and uh into other uh, facets of art where uh, Penn Dubois was known as a writer and as critic, but his artwork has not been as translated into popular culture as much as Hopper's has. Yeah, and I think that's very true. And I think that that's one, he's become popularized because of, you know, film noir, inspiration for movies, and even like parodyable works of art. But also, mm-hmm. I think there's something probably about Hopper. Uh, that is communicate that communicates maybe more universally. Everyone always thinks about Edward Hopper with scenes like Nighthawks or Automat or Early Sunday Morning. They think about themes of solitude and alienation and urban loneliness, and those are universal conditions of the psyche. Sometimes people say of the American psyche or the American condition. And while Pendebois grapples with similar themes, realist themes of life in the city and sophisticates going to the opera and you know, expatriates in Paris, there's something about Hopper's I think is a little bit more psychological than you have in a Pen Dubois. And I think when people feel they can relate more easily to Hopper, I think that also helps to create his legacy to be more thoroughly withstanding. Um, so I think that's part of 
why Pendawah perhaps is not as well known and why Hopper is better known. But I really do hope that when people come through, they can see those similarities in what they're doing. They both went to the New York School of Art. They studied together. Pendawah was Hopper's best man at his wedding. So they really did know each other, and they were really great friends. And to see that their careers were in parallel, but that you know their legacies went so divergently is so fascinating. And that's something I really hope that people begin to grapple with um, and start to think about what are the reasons why. Because there's a fickleness about the art world and <laughs> art history. I like that, the fickleness. Well, uh, I want to remind listeners that I'm speaking with Dr. Alexander Rich from the Polk Museum of Art and then also, of course, from, uh, excuse me, that you're also uh, a professor um, at Florida, I just lost my thing. Florida, Florida, Florida Southern you. College. Florida Southern yeah. College. So one of the things that was I found very attractive to the show and that is brought out through the materials and, and walking around seeing is that um, though both, like they both painted the same type of subjects, though one is more known, you know, uh, Penn Dubois, I think, when I think of his work, I think of figures, people, and thinking of Hopper's work is usually um, architecture where people play a smaller role in it, you know, and, but, but in the show, it's very clear that they both did everything. They are, there are landscapes uh, by Penn Dubois. There are people by Hopper. So it's not, these aren't absolutists, but there's a, a blend. But there's, I, I have to talk about this one painting that I'd never seen before. So my bad. Um, but I could not stop thinking about it. And I just, I cannot even meant, like talk about how much I love it. And it was uh, Guy Penn Dubois enjoying the show. Um, it was a mural for uh, the jumble mm-hmm. shop. It says, oh, it's and a wonderful piece. And yeah. and there, and there was another piece that now I can't remember. And um, yeah, and usually I'll you know try to take a picture, and I did, and I was very good. I didn't take pictures, <laughs> but um, but there was a so that was oil on canvas, and then but there was an oil on paper piece in there, and the absolute um, freshness and the immediacy of the work in both of those, even though there were oils. Which you don't. I mean, you know, I don't think of oil as being sort of a um, popping off the page immediacy, but that uh, the enjoying the show up close. And I realized, oh, I've probably seen pictures of this, but I've never seen it up close. And I could, I was just obsessed with it. It's an amazing painting. Yeah. yeah. And so what it made me think of is that even though you know both of these artists are put in the realist school, it seems that as time went on, they and especially Penn Dubois, since he was so familiar with all of the different arts, you know, the cubism and everything happening all over, that they sort of were incorporating or experimenting a little bit with these art movements going through, but within their wheelhouses, if that makes sense. And I mean, it's true, and I think you see that in particular. You know, this. 1913 is such a consequential year, again, because of that armory show. And I think you see, once you have an awareness of other types of art elsewhere, that's going to change the trajectory of, you know, anything you do in your own career, but especially with American art. This goes back to your earlier question. You know, the 19th century was, in the Western art world, was predominantly focused on what was going on in Paris. It was a de rigueur visit. You had to go to Paris to learn about the latest and greatest. And a lot of American artists did that in the second half of the 19th century, and Hopper and Pendebois did that in the early years of the 20th century. And, you know, there's wonderful writing by Pendebois in his memoir saying when he saw his first Cezanne. And Cezanne he saw actually in a store window in Paris. And this is before, you know, most people know about Paul Cezanne. And we talk about him art historically as being a link between the art of the 19th and the 20th centuries. And, you know, the, you know, the proto-Cubist style that mm-hmm. he inspires in artists like Picasso and Brock, among others. But he, you know, Pendebois sees on just in a shop window 
and you start <laughs> to see those ideas of, that you have firsthand experience, you're able to start integrating those. That's, that's already in 1905 or 1906. So Pendabaugh is having earlier access to modernist European art than many other artists of the period. And you start to see that inflected through their work. And certainly by the time we get into the 20s and the 30s and you know, 40s, and with pieces that you're speaking of, you can certainly see the way that modernism or modernist trends are getting in there. But they are strictly realist. They are firmed realist devotees. And I think that's really important, too, which mm-hmm. makes it a little bit dated after a while. You know, and, you know, they hold to it in the end. And most people in the world still like realism. Through to the time of the rise of surrealism and abstract expressionism, most consumers of art still wanted realism. Yet, you look at it, and it seems somewhat dated by the time you have someone like Jackson Pollock, beginning in 47, dripping paint on a canvas, and you still have Hopper and Pendebois painting in realist manners. So you start to see a shift in terms of the attentions of the art world toward what others are doing more abstractly and more modernistically than Hopper and Pendebaugh, but they stick to their guns, although they do integrate and they do try to make more and more novel innovations into their work, as mm-hmm. you saw. There, there's also, uh, you know, because when you're talking, so the um, Armory was 1913, so um, both men were late 20s, early 30s at that mm-hmm. time, I believe, if I'm doing my math right. Yep. And, yep. and they're reflecting not just, because you mentioned how art history is not just about the history of art, but the history of the times that people are living in and through. So they're going for being the first generation that has electricity, the first generation that might have, a, a mm-hmm. even if they had a telephone, probably not, but the first generation to have uh, these cross-Atlantic communication, uh, you know, trains become normal, cars become mm-hmm. normal. Like so, so the innovations that they're living through is not just, of course, in the art world. The innovation is everywhere. We think we're living through a time of crazy innovation, but our innovations, a lot of these times, look like more of or better of what we have. But the innovations they were living through were brand new. You know, the First World War. As I try to tell my students in my modern art class, you know, clearly I'm I'm a modern art historian, if that's not obvious. Um, You know, when I teach my modern art class, I tell my students that think about how different the world is. The world of 1850 versus, you know, I end my class in modern art in 1950. The world has transformed so dramatically. And you look between the 1880s and the 19 aughts, and you still see so many transformations of what's still basically a 19th century world, but into the years right before the the First World War, but you see those innovations, as you said. I mean, the electrification of cities, just imagine what that was like, getting on a transcontinental railroad. You used to not go any farther than a horse could take you or your feet mm-hmm. could take you. Worlds were globalized, and we talk about kind of the global network, right? We think about that idea of, you know, from the 90s forward now, but the idea of this globalization was happening in major ways, and the world was absolutely transforming day-to-day and year-to-year around these artists, and that's reflected in their work. You know, Robert Henry. Um, great American artist under whom they studied at the New York School of Art, his credo for his students was to paint what you know, paint the world you see. And that in particular was New York City in the early years of the 20th century. And they were showing the changing routines of Americans of all stripes. Um, other artists that they were associated with, you know, the artists who become the so-called Ashcan School, um, were you know, derogatorily referred to as painting you know, the people of the Ashcans or the slums of New York. And they were showing how the world was transforming for those that were sophisticated living in one area of, say, New York City versus the immigrants and the lower classes living in the lower portions of the city. And that was unheard of. This is all new subject matter that American artists like Hopper, like Pendebois, like George Bellows, like John Sloan, others of that school could explore. And that was really important because, again, we're still in the relatively early years of photography. Photography has introduced the world 
in the late 1830s, but it still is a niche area. Uh, and it's a luxury I mean, item. It's it, a luxury item. Absolutely. I mean, the Kodak camera is introduced in 1888, and so that is still a luxury item. So mostly you still have the domain of visual artists, whether that be in sculpture, in drawings, in engravings or etchings that appear in newspapers. It's still primarily the domain of visual artists to represent the world. And so there's a lot of power in doing that, and there's so much power in language, too. And I hope I try to convey this in the show in the sense that, you know, people were more, I, I hesitate to use the world, but kind of more cultured in a greater vacuum of that period because it was not, we have so many things that we can look at now, you know, Instagram and Facebook and every streaming show possible. People were reading the newspaper every day and they would see Guy Penderbois as the art critic for the New York American. So more and more people were aware of traditional art forms in fewer forums than they would be today. So it seems strange. Why would anybody care about the Armory Show of 1913? Why would anybody be reading about an exhibition at the local gallery? That's what people did. Right. They had their newspaper, they read it in the morning, and that's how people became aware of everything. So visual artists and even writers at the time held a lot, of, a lot more power and greater sway over American consideration of what was happening in history at the time. And I want to let listeners know, if you are uh, want to see uh, two examples of uh, Penn Dubois' work, and then I've got a, a hopper there that's not in the show, but um, you can go online to Art in Your Ear on WMNF.org, and you could see the one painting I mentioned, and then also there's a, uh, a looking at the city, there's um, looking north from 20th West, 10th, 20 West, 10th on there. So one of the things also that it was I was wondering about, skipping around a little bit, because then I want to go back and sort of talk to their influence on each other, but, uh, you know, in the... Uh, Hopper started to have uh, some success in the early 20s and then it kind of skipped a few years Mm -hmm. before he had more success. But during the Depression, one of the the big uh, parts of trying to handle the Depression, of course, was, you know, all these works programs that had sent artists out throughout the country where people who might have been very sort of urban located now were, um, were spreading around the country. And I'm wondering if that was, uh, in your, in your awareness and knowledge and research, if that had a huge impact on how Americans looked at not just the artists, but looked at like, this is American art, this is American art versus this is, a continent-influenced art, or this is, you know, this is art made by an American, or this is American art? Yeah, I think it's a, it's, it's a really good question. You know, I, I, I always think about this concept. We did an exhibition, actually, at the museum some years back. I think it was 2018, and I, and I titled it um, America slash American, and I explored that idea of what does it mean to make American art, and what does it mean to be an American artist, and obviously exploring the idea broadly that you don't have to be born in America to be an American artist, or is it looking at American themes, does that make it American, or can you be an American painting abroad, like Pendebois? And certainly when you get into the you know, 1929 and into the 1930s, you have these artists working for the WPA artists, you know, and primarily think about someone like Thomas Hart Benton. And we develop an interest in American art or American you know, culture in the time in regionalism, in works of art that really seem to speak to the American condition of that time, looking at the lives of the, you know, the rural poor or the working class or looking at farmers in the Midwest or the South. And that becomes something that holds greater esteem through the 1930s, say, than something like Pendebois is doing, painting expatriates who have the money to afford to be able to travel to Paris. 
and enjoying life in Paris. So there's certain tastes also of the time for looking at what are gritty works that speak to the true innovativeness and ingenuity and also grit of Americans. And then that tie turns a little bit, actually, as we get to the start of World War II, because there's a bit of a backlash. There's actually something, I'm not going to go too deeply into the arcana of this. People can look it up. But um, my students love when I mention this. There's something called the Grant Wood Controversy um, in the beginning of the 1940s. And that is because Grant Wood famously, who painted American Gothic, um, which I think practically everyone in the world knows, one of the most famous works of art of all time, many people said that by the time you have a world at war, a nationalistic subject like regionalist work, like seemingly American Gothic, which is a much more complicated work than that, or anything by Thomas Hart Benton or WPA murals you'll see in federal courthouses or post offices, People say that work is now dated. We can't do nationalistic work anymore. We have to globalize because this is a world where nationalism obviously can rear its head in really negative ways. Mm-hmm. So it's so interesting to see the shift even in American culture from decade to decade about what American art critics and American consumers and audiences are looking for and expecting in works of art that they will enjoy or that will come to the fore as the celebrated works of the period. I mean, certainly abstract expressionism suddenly was the great novelty of being a non-derivative, truly natively born American art form, which speaks also to your question about kind of looking at it, something that does not necessarily come from European precedent. And certainly Hopper and Pendubois have their own inimitable style. Once you come to our show and you see Hopper's landscapes and Hopper's figurative works, and there's that beautiful uh, early work of Hopper's I love in the show. It's probably my favorite work right now. It's his A Girl in White from his years at the New York School of Art. It's from a private collection. And you see Pendubois' works with his mask-like faces and these marionette-like figures, you'll always recognize their style. Mm-hmm. So while they are not necessarily full breaks from previous art history, they each have defined their own paths through it. And I think when you spend enough time in the show, which is 65 works, you'll really get to recognize their styles. And I love when people come out of exhibitions like ours or any museum exhibition and they have a knowledge base thing that, wow, that reminds me of a Guy Pendebois painting. And imagine just saying that to anybody. I, I hope that that happens as a result <laughs> of people coming to the show, that they'll recognize his style. Well, because I don't think anybody else paints like Guy Pendebois, and I don't think anybody else paints like Edward Hopper. And I think, too, and, that uh, Pendebois had such, during, his, during the 1920s, definitely, and uh, in 1930s, he had such strong influence over advertorial Work Like if you look at, uh, and you know, I mean, I have a friend who obsesses over old Vogues. And so I have seen a lot of Vogues from, you know, 1903 or four, whenever they started through the forties and, and looked at them and, and his paintings, you can just see the influence over the editorials and the advertisements mm-hmm. that they had in it. So you have this immediate impact. And later, you know, in the maybe the 50s or so, I don't, I don't know enough about it, you know way more about this, then you see more Edward Hopper having that, that impact. So there was something at one time speaking to people broadly and then another time something else speaking to the people broadly, mm-hmm. which is what you're talking about, that, that things shift and change and it seems like that's necessary because times change and so the art representing that time or the art distilling or or examining that time kind of has to change for for it to properly represent the time so yeah, the yeah, question I, I is do artists yeah. change or not yeah and I, I mean i think and i think artists do change and shift and i don't know that hopper and pendebosch shift as much as other artists might have and you know what if they had shifted what if they had lived longer and they both had pretty long lives. But, you know, what if they did, had shifted? You know, someone like, again, I always go back to Pollock. You know, Pollock dies in his mid-40s. What would he have done? 
he's known he's kind of frozen in time for his, you know, all-over drip painting. But Hopper Pendebot sticks pretty hard fast to that realist manner. But I think you're right in saying, you know, that they appeal to different eras. And, you know, if you think about the 1920s, I just look at Pendebot's paintings of flappers and women, you know, these elongated bodies of women who seem like fashion plates. And, you know, I even think, you know, you're mentioning, you know, Vanity Fair or mentioning Vogue. And I'm thinking like Edward Sykin's photographs of that same era. Yes. You know, there is that vision of the 1920s, early 1930s. And you get that really wonder- wonderfully through Pendebaugh's work. And I think what we see is post-World War II, I think there's maybe less of a, a desire for that kind of work. And you look again at Hopper's work, which is much more psychological. You can escape into them. You see people lost in thought if there are figures. You see these mysterious roads that leave off, lead off to nowhere. So you are left to have a little bit more of a place, I think, in Hopper's paintings if you're looking for, you know, greater sense of engagement in wonderment and thinking, wow, what is that person thinking of? What is outside that window? Who lives in that house? Whereas Pendebois, I think, reads a little bit more, I don't mean this in a negative way either, reads a little bit more superficially in the sense that, wow, these are beautiful people enjoying life of the period. But then if you read more deeply into it, which I hope it, it sounds like you spent a lot of time in the show, what I argue with my dissertation and try to in, argue in the show um, is also that there is something about these facades that those figures put on in Pendebaugh's works. You have these mask-like faces of people who go about their lives pretending that everything is perfect. And we know of that. If you want to bring it back to the 21st century, just think to the way that people present themselves. Right. They're like influencers. Media, <laughs> right. Exactly. And they want to make everything look great. And you think about how people want suffer from seeing that world that Everyone else is having such a great time, and you see that people are depressed and sad about that, but it's always putting on airs. And we are a culture of putting on airs, if nothing else, at this point in our, you know, in our social media-driven world. And I think there is a connection through to you know, jump 100 years ago to so those paintings of Pendebois from the 1920s, nearly you know, the 1930s. We're nearly 100 years from that. And you think about this, these figures, we can relate to them. What are the people that kind of this distance between us? Even post-COVID, this idea of people who are removed from one another, people who don't communicate as clearly as they might have used to. And I think there is something that resonates about Pendebois. Maybe he can have a moment where he can come back now, um, and Hopper's not going anywhere. Hopper is perennially you know, a favorite. But Pendebois maybe needs his moment here where there is a way to tie him to what we are thinking about and what we are maybe suffering through or what we're grappling with in our lives of the 21st century. And there's also, I mean, his landscapes, of course, don't, you know, and and saying dated, I mean, some do like flat out dated, but some some don't because there was one painting that I walked past and I was kind of like, uh, you know, not for me. And then I went back to it and I was like, oh, wait a minute. You know, and just when you're talking about the facade that there's, um, you know, a lot of times, and, and for instance, there's the painting that you use on the on the front piece of the on the website, so it's portrait of Patricia yeah. um, Pike and of Patricia Pike and yeah. white. So, but her t- her face is typical of mm-hmm. what the faces are, the expression, which is kind of this blank or withdrawn or internal, mm-hmm. very sort of internal. There's uh, you know, there's this in- internality. That's not the right word that the subjects have. That they're sort of even though the paintings are very rich in detail and are welcoming to the the eye. He paints them as people who do not want you to see their interior; that they're only exactly. willing to show you their exterior. And so, and so, there is more. Um, so, I want to um, I want to go back because we're, we're running out of time. Yeah. We could talk know, for two I, hours, I, I think. 
I know. I, I talk a lot. I apologize. Well, no, that's fine. No, you're, at least it's always it's all interesting. If you were being boring, then I'd cut you off. Believe me. But um, but so I wanted to talk a little bit about the friendship because you know you've you've been around art and artists for a long time. Luckily, I've gotten to do this show for a long time. And and one of the things that I've always enjoyed about where we live in in Florida is that there's these art groups that kind of arise where artists, um, both formally and informally, work together, support each other, they attend each other's shows, they give each other their work, um, and there's that loyalty and support. But there's also, I think, when there's true arts friendship, they push each other a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of wondering how that works within the um, friendship between uh, Pendebois and Hopper, what influence they had on each other. And I, it's a great question. I think, it, and it's hard to know how direct an influence they had because you know you think about this, and I've, I'll say this to my students especially, and, and to any tour group actually. You know, next, you know, when I have my tour, my first tour in this coming week of the show, you know, it's hard to gauge in a time where communication was so much more limited how much time they ended up actually spending together. They were, you know, best friendship or close friendship of the early 20th century is a little bit different than you might have today. And so I, won't, I don't know how much time they spent physically together, although they wrote letters very often. They traveled together. Obviously, they knew each other. They were at each other's weddings. So I don't know how much direct influence you have kind of documented, but I think you can see it through the show in some ways. And I think because Pendebois was so much more dedicated a figure painter um, and figure, figurative artist, I think you do see that somewhat reflected probably in Hopper, and I have to imagine that the landscapes of Pendebois are also inflected with some Hopper in there. Because, again, you don't think about Pendebois being a landscape painter, and Hopper you know, spent so much of his career on landscapes, which may be a surprise also to audiences. And so I think you will see probably, especially because we do put them side by side, and we put them into the same gallery spaces, you can see some, probably some visual and aesthetic Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. I don't, I don't know historically by research you can trace what those are. But right. What's wonderful about an exhibition like this is that clearly they saw each other's work. They knew each other's work. Pendebois promoted Hopper's work very heavily, which is so funny to think about this, right? The one, the one figure who's much better known today was the one who needed the leg up by a power figure. <laughs> Pendebois was a power figure in the world. If you are the art critic, for the New York American, which is now you know a defunct newspaper now, but a major one of the major publications in New York City in the first half of the 20th century, and if you are the editor for Arts and Decoration magazine for a decade, you're a power player. So he had the ability to help promote his friend, and I think that's where you see direct influence in you know boosting the sales of Hopper's work or boosting attention for him, helping him get into the Armory Show in 1913, buying some of his early work. So I think you see influence. Um, certainly monetarily and financially and, you know, patronage-wise. But then I think in the show, you can just see, as you're saying, aesthetically, they clearly were looking at each other's work. Well, I mean, looking at imitative, Hopper's, um, Hopper's ob obsession with light, you know, yeah. and uh, and just how he looks at not just the direction and but the diffusion and the different types mm -hmm. of light and you know over and over again in these paintings and everything. Um, so that was one thing where it seemed to me that the way Dubois, uh, Dubois sort of uh, used light shifted over the years, which of course could be a lot of different things. But you know, just knowing, I mean, that's one of the glories of Hopper. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know what the painting is, but. He has a famous painting, which basically is kind of like you—you you really see the side of a barn and a roof, 
uh, and it's grayish, but the light is just turns everything golden. I mean, it's just it's amazing, and um, and so it was really fun to kind of play that little bit of a, a guessing game, you know, uh, on yeah. who's this, who's that, of, of having it around. Well, we're like we're past time, but I'm going to oh. keep talking anyway, if you don't mind, if you've got another yeah, couple minutes. Yep. Absolutely. So I want to mention too. I want to broaden this a little bit, and so the show. Let me just give some facts out about the show, so people know the show just opened. It's up through Sunday, March 26th. Uh, and uh, it's at the Polk Museum of Art. You guys are closed uh, Sunday and Monday because holidays. Uh, and then on Thursday, Thursday nights, you all are open until 8 o'clock. So at 6 p.m. on Thursday, you're doing a gallery talk I will be, yeah. about this. Uh, so that's going to be fun. So dear listener, and I'll post all that. Um, I think it's posted on our Art in Your Ear page, but I'll repost everything. But it's so interesting because then when you walk out in the rest of the museum, you have, one, you have some really famous art right front. Mm-hmm. And then you have this this interesting quilt show, which mm-hmm. at first seems to have, you know, just be sort of like a, you know, total uh, 90 degree turn. But then I was thinking like, here's somebody who is manifesting this whole idea of texture and light and mm-hmm. and people and uh, places, but within a, a sort of three-dimensional, both two-dimensional and three-dimensional form. So, you know, I was kind of wondering like, if you were coming to the museum, if you have somebody coming to the museum for a first time, and you have the Hopper show and you have the quilt show and, and you know, you've got work upstairs, you have all these and you've got a show opening, I think, next week too, another show opening on Sunday or, or the 7th or something. So how do you want people to experience this? Like what's the ideal way for people to experience what's at the Polk Museum right now to walk through? Where do they start? Yeah, oh, I, I love the question. And what you're tapping into is, you know, what what we try to do and what I think, you know, all you know, great museums should strive to do is, you know, get people to come through the doors for an exhibition that they're, you know, inherently interested in for whatever reason, you know, and many people will come to a museum for a name like Hopper, um, increasingly maybe for Penn Dubois, and then they'll come through and they will discover an artist like Lauren Austin, um, who is a living African-American artist in Florida who makes these beautiful quilts that grapple with experiences that could not be more disparate in some ways from those that are explored by Hopper and Pendubois, but also explore the same ideas of American life just through a different lens. And so I think it's wonderful that people get that discovery when they come through the museum. Now, of course, I hope people stay at the museum for hours and hours. <laughs> every word that we put up in the shows, um, you could stay for hours and hours. And then we're actually we're expanding the museum, too. We're adding six more galleries. Um, we're building, beginning construction this year, so we're going to have a lot of space for people to enjoy a plethora of different types of art across time and cultures in the coming years. But you come through now, um, I think everyone chooses their own adventure. I mean, I would probably, just so I can I could gauge my time, I would probably start in the Hopper Pendabaugh show, um, just since I don't know what people's time, how limited it is or not, so they can spend time in there, um, so they can get through it and be able to imbibe this history. But again, I mean, you can start anywhere. Um, you know, we're not a huge museum. There may be some benefits starting with Lauren Austin, going through there and getting a taste for a 21st century artist, and then going back in time and looking at Hopper and Pendabois. You can go to our Spirit African and Oceanic Art Gallery. We have a beautiful student gallery. There's so much to be able to see, and I think if people can really get a good half day dedicated to coming to visit the museum, they won't be disappointed. But I think it's, yeah, I like, I like the idea of choose your own adventure in the museum, but I'd probably suggest starting with the Hopper Pendabaugh show. It's been four years in the making, so I really, really <laughs> want people to come see it. It has been a real labor of love for our entire team at the museum. Everyone has put in so much time into this, along with 501 
projects in New York City who collaborated with us on the show. It took a long time to pull together, and the loans are just so incredible and cost a lot of money, frankly. So I really hope people will make sure they come see that, but also not to miss any of the other exhibitions. But I'd probably say start there and see how, see how it goes. And it was fun. I have to tell you, fun, of course, there's also the student's work gallery, but it's fun to go look at that and then walk through the Hopper uh, Penn Dubois show again mm-hmm. just after it because no matter what, Everything is linked together. It's it's what it's a corpus that is all related to each other. None none of the art that exists today would exist without its ancestors. You know, it's all related to each other. So it was fun seeing it and then walking back in and looking at some of the colors that they have chosen to uh, juxtapose and then colors that, you know, in other exhibitions were juxtaposed. So, it, so it's just a, a delight. And I want to tell you that we're getting nice emails saying uh, the wonderful Nancy has written, you know, about saying uh, it's fascinating. I must go to the show, uh, you know, so, uh, and then she talked about Hopper reminds her of Charles Gatewood, an uh, Alabama artist, you mm-hmm. know, so, so I think that, um, one, I'm so grateful that you did it, because I imagine after four years, you're kind of like, let me just get this done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and it was, and we had to delay it, actually, you know, originally, I believe, I spoke back to the dates, we shifted the dates a few times, we were originally supposed to open it in 2021, uh, and COVID threw yeah. off all those plans, and we had to re-request works of art, and, you know, and fascinating, you know, all the work that goes into it. It's not just like we come up with an idea for a show. Let's do a show on Hopper and Pendabon and snap our fingers. Right. It is a lot of moving parts. And when you have 65 works and you have a lot of them, the majority of them coming from all separate sources, it takes a whole huge team to do it. So it's a relief that it is up. Um, actually, <laughs> I don't know. Since I didn't get to see it in the last couple of days, I know our preparator um, is putting extra text in there. I actually wrote a coda for the show, which I think will help to sum up a little bit of what we've been talking about today. So that's going to be up in the exhibition uh, so people can kind of see that we bring a through line from the thesis we present for the show through to kind of thinking about, well, what are the legacies of Hopper and mm-hmm. Dubois? So it's a relief for me to have the show up, a relief for our team after all this diligence. Um, and strenuous work of making the show come together and installing a large show like this. It's a relief to have it up and now to share it finally because, I mean, it's kind of surreal to me, frankly, that I spent so many years of my life writing on Pen Dubois and now to finally have, this is this is the moment in my life that I have a Pen Dubois. <laughs> it is kind of, it's a little bit, you know, pinch myself that we pulled it together and, I, and I'm privileged to have the ability to lead a museum where I can have my research Right. And that's, and isn't that smart? I mean, I have to say that's smart of a museum to allow that because if you have a curator, executive director, who's also the curator, passionate about something, then that passion translates. I mean, this is, if the passion about art translates to people wanting to see it because that is arts and music you know, in sports, those are the places where people can be some unrhythmingly passionate. They could just go for it. Yep. And so, um, so I hope, so we're way out of time. So I, <laughs> so I just want to mention uh, that the, you can get all sorts of information. Um, it's Polk, P-O-L-K, PolkMuseumOfArt.org. And you can find out all sorts of information. Uh, the Polk Museum, again, next Thursday night, you're open uh, till 8 p.m. And at 6 p.m., uh, Dr. Alex Rich, our guest, will be doing a tour of of it. Uh, and then the museum is located at 800 East Palmetto Street in Lakeland. It's right behind that beautiful uh, beautiful library and on the little lake there. Um, there's a million little lakes, so that doesn't help. But, um, but yeah, it's, just, it's just a delight. And thank you 
uh, please stay in touch because I'm so curious. It was I really enjoyed getting out there, and I need to go to Lakeland much more often and um, and look around. There's so much going on there. Absolutely, and I, and I appreciate it. And, every, and everyone should know that you know it, it is free to come to our museum. So you don't have to worry about any sort of cost to enjoy a show like this. So we appreciate that. And people should come to Lakeland, experience the culture of Lakeland. We are, you know, we are rising art scene, and nobody will be disappointed when they come to our museum. Um, we try to put on a good show, and it sounds like you enjoy it, and I hope other people will enjoy it. Too. Me too. I hope so. I want to mention that the hours are Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. on Sundays. Open 1 p.m. to 5 p.m., except uh, this coming Sunday, and then uh, again till 8 o'clock on Thursday. So Dr. Alex Rich from the Polk Museum, thank you so much for coming in to talk about uh, this wonderful show, Edward Hopper and uh, Guy Pen Dubois Painting the Real. I am just, now I want to go back again and look at all the works all over well, again. Let me know when you come by. I, I would love, to, your, your feedback on it has been wonderful. And anybody who, you know, you happen to see me in the hall, just, you know, I'm happy to come on in and chat with you. But let me know when you're coming back. I'd love to, you know, see you again and let me know also what your what your response is to at the second viewing that sounds great well thanks again so much and uh happy new year thank you you too happy new year bye-bye bye Unfortunately, I have to talk over the music. Oh, I hate talking over the music. Because um, I want to let you know something else going on and all this, blah, blah, blah. So on Thursday, next Thursday night, Tempest Projects opens a new show, Ghost Orchid, Fever Dream. Recent works by Christina Molina. And I've invited them to come on the show. I don't know if 
I waited too long to do that, but uh, they might come on. Tempest Projects is located at 1624 East 7th Avenue on the second floor. Uh, and there's all sorts of art spaces, and that's where that micro cinema is. It's really fun. I really want to get them all in here and talk about this great little, you know, concentration of incredibly cool stuff in Ebor to no one else's surprise. Of course, I want to wish you all a very happy new year. Uh, as I said at the top of the show, if you missed it, I'm doing Flea's show, so we'll have Flea Ellen on the air Monday from noon to three. And so if you have uh, any New Year's resolutions that you're making, uh, please let me know. You can send them to joeellen at wmnf.org. I want to say hi to Steve, who's written one of the nicest things ever. Thank you, Steve. Rob in Sarasota. Nancy, I love you. And Skip, I miss you. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. Thanks, everybody out there. E-Love is in the studio getting ready to do her beautiful global electronica show. After that, of course, is the live music show- showcase. And it looks like they're setting up a really big band. So that will be fun. There will be live music on the airs just after the NPR News at 2. That's always followed by Reverend Billy and Marvelous Marvin. And uh, Rhythm Revival at 3 till uh, 6 o'clock. Then we've got the award winning, uh, wonderful award winning uh, show and DJ uh, with classic R&B, classic soul and that is Steve the Hitman at 6, followed by the smorgasbord of tasty rhythm based music with the Soul Kitchen at 8pm and that is just such such a great show I love it and then we end up our night every single Friday with Flashback Friday uh, and that is Florida R&B and Florida Soul it's just a pleasure to listen to so thank you for being out there thanks for being on the airways with us here on WMNF Tampa WMNF 88.5 FM uh, and I will talk to you next week please stay tuned for the NPR News and then we've got um, E-Love and I'll be see you on Monday I hope bye bye now oops wrong one WMNF Tampa, 